Welcome to After School Science Club. I'm Liv. And I'm Mick. And we are scientists and science communicators, and we're here to talk about all of the cool science you never learned about in school. We'll talk about recent news in the world of science and medicine, controversies, conspiracies, and more. You can look forward to a steady stream of expert guests who will be joining us to talk about everything from A for aliens to Z for zombie apocalypses. In our first episode, though, we just want to introduce ourselves and share a few of the coolest things that are going on in the world of science this month. Um, so I fully admit I am a molecular biologist by trade with some digressions into paleontology and environmental geology. But one of the most interesting pieces of science news I've come across recently is a controversial proposal that it's possible that humans did in fact find life on Mars, but managed to kill it with our testing before we ever really saw that it was there. So a hypothesis has been recently proposed that NASA's samples taken on Mars in 1976 may have contained tiny life forms, such as bacteria, that were able to survive in the Martian environment, but that the experiments carried out on those samples may have overwhelmed and killed those microbes before humans were able to detect their presence. Some people think it's an intriguing idea that explains some things. Other scientists think that it's just a completely far-fetched idea. What do you think, Liv? So are they saying that they just they destroyed the sample when they were collecting it or when they were analyzing it? The way it works is the landers collect the samples and then conduct tests within themselves. They don't have to bring them back to Earth for testing. And the suggestion is that the samples that were picked up may have contained life, but the tests that the landers performed overwhelmed and destroyed it before they detected its presence. So the testing that was done on the samples wasn't necessarily aimed at detecting life. And as a result, they may have destroyed the life that may have been present. And see why it's a kind of controversial opinion to have, really, because how did they know in the first place, if they've not detected that life, why do they think they might have detected it in the first place? Because have we been to Mars since then? I'll admit, I don't really know much about space travel, although we're going to talk a lot more about that later. But have there been non-human missions to Mars since landing there in 1976? Yes, absolutely. There have been plenty of non-human missions to Mars. Um, people will potentially re remember some fun things like uh, the rovers singing Happy Birthday to itself. But what's going on with these samples is that the two Viking landers, which were sent up in the 70s, um, had some specific tests aimed at looking for traces of life. So things like organic compounds in the soil, um, seeing if any metabolic effects had happened, things like that. And there were some confusing and slightly contradictory results. Um, there were some results that supported the idea that there may have been life on Mars, some results that supported traces of metabolic activity, um, and they weren't sure why not all of the results agreed with each other. So for instance, one of the most key experiments gave a result that suggested there couldn't have been life on Mars. 
So nobody really understands why the results weren't all aligned with one another. Um, some of them were explained by contamination, but not all. So people don't really know. The scientist who's brought up this controversial viewpoint suggested that using too much water in the experiments might have yielded results that weren't entirely accurate because life on Mars would have to be adapted to live in a very water-scarce environment. So some people like these, this proposal because it might explain these contradictory results. Other people think that it's not nearly as uncertain or controversial as it's being made out, and that there are alternative reasonable explanations based on chemical presences that would resolve the confusion without the need for there to be life in the samples in the first place. So who knows? So what are those explanations, like sample collection? I don't want to say dodgy, but do dodgy analysis. No, no. Uh, those who don't agree with the hypothesis about life in the samples suggest that a chemical called perchlorate and its byproducts could adequately explain the confusing results. And that would mean that there doesn't need to be life in the sample to explain those results. It's an ongoing debate. There have been previous proposals that we might have found and destroyed life on Mars. It was proposed some years ago that heating up the samples could have destroyed life that was present before we could have found it. So there is an element of scientists not having enough information yet to come to an agreement on why the results are in conflict. And there may also be an element of it's human nature not to want to be alone. And that includes as a species in the universe. While we're talking about weird life, let's talk about some news that you pointed out to me recently. Tell me about this mysterious golden orb. Yeah, so we're kind of, we're going from one end of the spectrum here to another from space to the sea. So marine biologists have found what looks like a golden egg at the bottom of the ocean just off the coast of Alaska. They actually found it at the time of recording. They found it a few weeks ago, so at the end of August. Um, but they still don't know what it actually is. They've described it as this golden orb that's likely an egg casing. And there's a hole in the side of it. It looks like, you know, in the original Willy Wonka movie, when she goes to get a golden egg from, is it the goose, a swan? I can't remember. But it looks like one of those, just like kind of on the side of a rock. But it's got a hole in the side of it, which one of the researchers said, it looks like something has tried to get in or get out of it. So I think maybe that's why they're thinking maybe it's an egg casing. And then they had this piece of machinery that they were exploring with, and they sort of nudged it with the arm of it. And they said it was like soft and, and skin-like. So they've now collected samples and taken to test it in a lab, but they're, they're still unsure even after testing. They still don't know what it is. It's not that different to talk about life in space versus life deep under the ocean, because they're both extremely inhospitable environments, and they're both environments we know very, very little about. In fact, we actually know more about space than we know about the bottom of the sea. What's slightly more worrying is that 
we found a mysterious orb with a skin-like texture. Those are never good words to have together in a sentence. And then we took it out of the ocean and brought it to the lab. This definitely feels like the start of a film that ends in a lot of deaths and a potential sequel. Yeah, well, we only, once I got looking into it, we've actually only explored around 5% of the ocean, which is quite terrifying, first of all. Um, But also, like you just said, it reminds me of, and I think this was last year, this, this went around and whether it was true or not, that scientists were apparently saying that, um, and this reminded me of it because we're talking about golden eggs and eggs and surely this isn't a good idea, but I swear they wanted to bring back the, the woolly mammoth. And I've seen Jurassic Park too many times to know that that is not a good idea. I remember the desire to bring back the woolly mammoth, which is better than a lot of scientific desires because at least the woolly mammoth was highly unlikely to prey on humans. But it can be quite a challenge, possibly more so than most people realize, to bring an extinct species back. And the longer they've been extinct, the harder it is. I admit that Jurassic Park is not 100% wrong in that it is possible to find the DNA of creatures who are extinct and not just trapped in mosquitoes in amber either. Um, We can literally, in the right fossilization conditions, find material such as dinosaur bone marrow which lets us figure out their DNA. But DNA degrades a lot over time. And whereas Jurassic Park filled in the gaps with frog DNA, which we all know ended well for them, it's not as easy as it sounds. The gaps are too big, and what you ended up bringing back would not be the same thing as went extinct. It's kind of like trying to build a Lego kit, but not only do you not have the instructions... You have no idea what the end result is supposed to be, and you're missing half of the pieces. But it sounds a bit like Frankenstein, right? It literally is Frankenstein, but with woolly mammoths. And if you're saying that a woolly mammoth is probably like the ideal creature to bring back, why would you then want to like put other DNA into it if that's what you need to do? Because then if it doesn't come back as what you want it to be, we're going to have evil woolly mammoths. Yes, and that's the last thing we need. I'm sure there's got to be some kind of creature feature B-movie about this. I think woolly mammoths are a good target because they went extinct much more recently. We have much closer relatives, and they were often preserved in ways that kept their bodies relatively intact, like falling wholesale into a tar pit. So they're a good target, but it's still not a great idea. Since we seem to have moved on to talking about prehistoric creatures, though... Um, There has been some interesting news recently about a new bird-like dinosaur. Um, So most of the bird-like dinosaurs that we've found so far have been basically looking like a featherless chicken. They ran around on the ground. We think a lot of the ones that were more wing-like hopped around in trees. But the new one, which is called Fujian Venator Prodigiosus... I'm so glad that you were the one to try and attempt to balance that and not me. I'm not, but part of the source of its scientific name, which means wanderer, is its legs. It had really, really unusually long legs. So we're talking about a dinosaur that may have looked more like a heron than like a chicken. Its lower legs were about twice as long as its upper legs. 
And it's the first bird-like dinosaur that's ever looked like this. So there are some suggestions that because it lived in what we know used to be a swampy kind of environment, there are suggestions that it might have used its long legs to either run after fast-moving prey or wade through deeper water. Um, But the really interesting thing it tells us is that unlike we used to think, the birdiest of the dinosaurs didn't all live in trees or around trees, that they probably had a variety of environments. And this is our first clue to what some of those alternate environments might have been. I think that's cool. Did they know if it could fly? I don't think that they know if it could fly. I think it's quite difficult to determine because it's a combination of a number of factors, like how good was its feather coverage, the wing to body proportions, the size of its soft tissues, because like, uh, it's very hard to tell. The bones can give us a clue as to how much it might have, how heavy it might have been, how much it might have weighed, because the bones can be larger or stronger to carry more or less weight. But we can't be entirely sure. And then, you know, were the bones hollow, that sort of thing. Clearly, I need to read the papers more closely because I don't know. I'm just looking at the the photo that's accompanying the release um, that we were looking at. And it's kind of terrifying, but I know what you mean with the legs as well. It's kind of, I don't know, it's just really weird to look at. And how do they, okay, this is the other thing that I have to ask. How do they know what colour, or do they know what colour its feathers were? Or is this just an illustration that they've just put together? Because that's what I would also like to know. Generally, the answer to any questions about colour in prehistory are, we don't know. Um, We make a lot of educated guesses as to colour based on a variety of things, like the environments where we know these things lived. Um, So just like you know that modern animals use camouflage, we know the kind of colors that would have been helpful in camouflaging prehistoric animals because we know a lot about the kinds of environments where they lived. That's the kind of information it's quite easy to find out. That doesn't mean we're right about it. They might have been super bright so that they could mm, attract a mate. Um, They might have camouflage themselves differently than we think so the honest answer is we don't really know but there are some times when we can make a better guess than other times Uh, that might be because we have better preserved feathers or skin tissue or because there has been less divergence so less change between the prehistoric species and modern versions like in sharks which are pretty much exactly like they were in the time of the dinosaurs maybe a little bit smaller And there are times when color isn't a pigment thing like it is for us, but a structural thing. And we see this in the modern day as well. Lots of insects and birds have structural color. So the way that the cells of their wings or feathers are arranged reflect light in certain ways. And the laws of physics tell us what color they are. A lot of blue creatures get their color this way. So if you ever see those iridescent blue butterflies, that's often a structural color, not a pigment. And we have seen structural color in prehistoric feathers before as well. So when we see that kind of thing, uh, the laws of physics tell us what color they have to have been. There's no controversy about that. It's quite rare, though, so most of it is still guesswork. I feel like I need to brush up on my dinosaur knowledge or, like, 
my paleo knowledge. That's okay. You are our our resident brains expert. I am indeed, which we will cover in future episodes, which I'm super excited about because then I'll be able to chime in a bit more as well. I feel like there's been a lot to talk about this week, but I feel like there's been especially a lot to talk about with respect to space and space discovery, because I know we kind of got off track with space after we talked about the maybe, maybe not aliens on Mars, but there's been so much space news lately. Like I want to talk about the black holes. I want to talk about the moon. Um, let's, let's do that. Let's talk about the black holes. Scientists recently discovered that black holes after eating stars, which we all knew they did, apparently, quote unquote, burp out their remains for years afterward. That's the part we didn't know. I find this so interesting because I thought that nothing could escape a black hole, but is it expelling it itself and it's actively burping it out, so to speak? Because, yeah, to my understanding, once you're in a black hole, you can't come out because of its gravitational pull. So not a space expert, but that's my understanding of it as well. I know that when a star gets sucked into a black hole, not all of the material makes it in. Um, Kind of like when you pull the plug and drain a bathtub and some of the water stays in the bottom instead of going down the plug. It's not a perfect system. So some of the star gets thrown out of the black hole and gets clear of its pull. The rest of it kind of ends up in a circle around the black hole. It's called an accretion disk. And slowly, slowly, that disk gets sucked into the black hole. So it's unstable at first, and then it stabilizes as more and more of it gets sucked in. And then what we thought was, once it's gone, it's gone. But what we seem to have discovered now is that actually, in as many as half of these star-killing events, the black hole will flare up with radio waves months or years afterward, um, and just spit out some stellar matter from this disk. So why? I don't know. The good news is experts don't know either, so I'm not on my own here. This is the first time anyone has looked at black holes for this long after they've eaten a star, so it's the first time anyone's actually observed this activity, so there's been no study into it at all. And that's how we get the information, right, is through the... Um the radio waves. So when stars get too, to my understanding, when stars get too close to a black hole, they're torn apart by tidal forces around the black hole, which is a tidal disruption event. And we can see, I say we, <laughs> astrophysicists can see this happening because it causes like a bright flash that can then be picked up by radio waves. That's my understanding. That's about it. We watch the radio waves that the black holes emit they eat a star, we think it's all good, and then after we've stopped looking, they spit bits of it back out again. Now that we know that, I guess the next question is, why? And what can we do with that knowledge? Maybe we should get an astrophysicist on. I don't think we have an astrophysicist planned at this moment, but we definitely have a space expert coming up who will talk to us about the moon. Yay! So why don't we talk about the moon right now because there's been a lot going on in moon news over the past few weeks as well yeah so so far 12 astronauts have walked on the moon the first being in 1969 the last being in 1972 
if I remember correctly. And there's been six Apollo missions. So 12 astronauts have walked on it, but there's actually 96 bags of human waste on the moon. And now, um, so there's this story, the moment that's talking about this waste, and basically scientists want to return the moon to retrieve those bags to study it for um, any signs of life, how the how it's getting on, basically how it's fed under the conditions on the moon for the past, what, 50, 50 years? Because um, essentially when astronauts go to space, they wear like a space diaper, essentially. Um, but they had to leave their waste behind on the moon's surface because there's a maximum weight that's calculated that the spacecraft can carry. And any weight over that then puts astronauts at risk because it's very precise. So the astronauts, they actually not only, looking into this topic, they didn't even just leave behind human waste. They also left behind personal items as well. So I think there's like a little model that an artist has made. There's a family photograph. There's a few different things that are currently on the moon. Basically, what they want to go back and look at is how the human waste will be affected by the moon's conditions, um, solar energy particles and cosmic rays to learn more about life in space and whether we could actually can or whether life can actually survive in those conditions so the interesting thing about the moon poo is that unlike everything else we've left on the moon and yes we are already littering the moon the reason behind that is when they send up a mission to the moon they have to account for extra weight on the way back because we want to collect samples and things but to do that something's got to get left behind as well and in this case, it was poo. Um, but the interesting thing about that, more so than anything else we've left on the moon, is that about a third of human poo is made up of bacteria, generally dead bacteria, but not entirely dead bacteria. So there's a lot of organic matter on the moon, and we want to find out what moon conditions have done to this, and especially what moon conditions have done to any living or formerly living components. They'll have bacteria in them. They'll probably have viruses in them. They'll have been exposed to unfiltered UV radiation because our Earth atmosphere protects us from it, but the moon doesn't have that kind of thing. And it would be really interesting to see what has survived on lunar conditions. Um, a few years ago, the news came out that there were bacteria on the outside of the International Space Station and that they were still alive after three years in space. So they can do all kinds of things we don't expect. And if they can survive exposed in space, then they're quite likely to be able to adapt to conditions similar to those on the moon. They may achieve this alive. They may achieve this by going dormant, and then we would have to revive them. There's no data as to which, and the only way to find out is a mission for moon poo. <laughs> an interesting angle to this controversy that I particularly enjoy is that there is an argument over who owns the poo on the moon. The bags left behind by the first moon landing at its site are um, protected uh, by their heritage status which isn't that strong, but is better than the rest of it, which has no protections. We don't have any laws about littering in space. We don't really have any laws about space litter ownership. 
So there's no real guidance to go from on who owns the poo. And it may be as simple as who gets there first. If I remember correctly, we actually talk about that in our episode next week about the moon with Yoav Landsman, about whether people actually own parts of the moon. When you said dormant there, it's funny, actually, because there was um, some research that looked into viruses or specifically herpes virus in astronauts when they went on space shuttle missions and to the uh, missions to the International Space Station. And it actually showed that herpes can reactivate in space. But then when it was more likely to reactivate in space, but then when they came back down to Earth, herpes went dormant again. So with herpes virus, it always once you've got it, it always lives in your body and it sort of reactivates every now and then for a myriad of reasons um usually there's like cold sores on your on your mouth um but yeah so they looked at the immune response and and whether uh this virus would reactivate but we also know that the that space effect well space affects the human body anyway but it also affects the immune system and there was there's been tons of research on this but there was actually um one that came out very recently that identified almost 300 genes that were affected by six months of space flight, but a hundred of those were related to immune responses. So when they went up to space, there was a dampening of the immune response, which led them to believe that like the herpes virus, it can um, cause dormant viruses to reactivate and then cause illness. But then when they returned to earth, gene expression went up and the immune system returned to normal functioning. So if you already have a bit of an iffy immune system, you may want to join mission control on the ground instead of building your career in space. I think we should probably call it a day there because we don't want to get into spoilers for our next episode when, as we've said, moon expert Yav Landsman joins us to talk about what we've done on the moon in the past, what we might do on the moon in the future, what we can and can't do, and the kinds of things we need to think about when we're planning our future as a spacefaring species. And we also do talk about moon poo in that episode. I think that was the first time that I, that you'll all hear in that episode where I'm like, human waste on the moon? And I'm, I'm shocked by this, but now I know more. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a really exciting episode, and we are excited to bring you so many fun episodes throughout the season we've got some really great guests lined up and then in the coming weeks as well we will be doing our spooky scary science club episodes which are our halloween themed episodes i don't want to spoil too much it's gonna be great so to make a long story short if you like space dinosaurs viruses medicine vampires zombies you name it we'll figure it out and tell you all about the science of it Thanks for listening, everybody, to episode one, and we'll we'll see you you next week. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, or both. Thank you for listening to Outer School Science Club, hosted by Liv Gaskell and Mick Schubert, with music by Sam Watts. I'm Liv, and you can find me on Instagram at sciencewithliv. And I'm Mick, and you can find me at mickschubert.com, as well as a variety of other places. You can also email us at scicluppodcast at gmail.com, 
That's S-C-I club podcast at gmail.com. So get in touch if you have any burning questions or if you want to suggest a cool topic for us to discuss in a future episode. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. Boom! We did it!